episode of the M&A Mastermind Podcast, your go-to source for the latest in industry trends and strategies to help you level up your M&A practice. I am your host, Nick Olson, Managing Director of Cornerstone International Alliance, a consortium of lower middle market M&A firms from across the globe. Here, we bring in masterminds who are experienced, knowledgeable, and gracious enough to share how they have succeeded in the world of M&A. My guest, everything I just said fits that bill. I'm really excited. Uh, he is... Uh, he is a go-to resource in the M&A world, I would, I would consider. Um, he founded Private Equity Info in 2005, um, really focused on creating tools that uh, he wished he had when he was an investment banker. Um, it is Private Equity Info is a tool that a lot of our partners at C, uh, Cornerstone International Alliance utilize and love, by the way, um, myself being one of them. Their database has over 28,000 firms, 180,000 executives. 1 million companies, and 33,000 funds. This platform is very user-friendly and uses the latest technologies to help us all do our jobs better. Uh, please welcome my guest today, owner and founder of Private Equity, Indo Private Equity Info, Andy Jones. Andy, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Nick. Um, my pleasure. I'm, 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 I'm excited you, uh, you are uh, willing to be here with us today, and I think this is going to be a great conversation. Uh, like I mentioned in the introduction, um, I love your platform. I use it, and I think it's got a lot of great features and, and technologies that um, any M&A advisor uh, could benefit from. But um, Thank you. Let's, uh, let's start out by just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I mentioned you started investment banking. You, you, you realized the problem, and you solved the problem uh, by founding Private Equity Info. So why don't you dive a little bit into that for us? Well, we're continually solving the problem, right? There's always more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. Good to clarify. Uh, you know, originally I started out as an engineer, uh, a okay. mechanical engineer, and then I did my master's in acoustics before moving into investment banking, with, uh, originally with Bear Stearns in the London office doing bulge, uh, bulge bracket uh, transactions. And then I did some middle market transactions here in Texas. We're in Austin, Texas. Uh, and then I founded... Private Equity Info, 2005, as you mentioned, and it, and it really was the tool I wish I'd had. Awesome. Um, so I know one thing, and, and like I said, I'm a user of it. Um, a lot of our members are users of it. But what would you say, you know, separates you guys from any, you know, similar, you know, maybe an, you know, ancillary type of database? I know I would say your data accuracy and integrity is probably at the top and something you guys focus on regularly, correct? Yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, you know, story time. So I come from the world of investment banking, right? And in bulge bracket investment banking, at least, it's it's got this culture of mistakes are unforgivable, right? And so I remember one day I was, I came into the office one morning and on my chair, there were seven or eight pages from a pitch book. And it was all the same page. They were sitting in my chair and in red ink, the bottom right corner, the page number was circled on every page. I was like, what is this? And you know, I recognized the page. It was it was a pitch that I had been working on. My vice president, you know, said, Look, right as we were going into the client meeting, we noticed the page number was wrong. So rather than present a mistake to the client, they ripped that page out of the page book. This is back when we were printing, you know, pitches. And yeah. uh, ripped it out and he left it on my chair, you know, for me to see in the morning. You know, you, you do a pitch in the last minute, you're shuffling some pages and whatnot. And, and you know, that right. happened. So that, we, I understand the culture and I understand the importance of accuracy of information. 
And that's kind of the background I'm coming from. And, and that's why we are just absolutely fanatical about our data quality. Um, in terms of like the secret sauce, people ask that all the time. You know, what, what is the secret sauce to keeping the data accurate and timely and up to date? Um, I mean, basically we've built really good technology systems, processes. We have a really great team in place that just does the grind. It's a grind. Uh, and, and it's just the focus on attention to detail. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I would attest that your your data is rock solid, and um, and it's it's been great. You know, the last thing you want is you know when you're doing a pitch to a potential buyer, and you know you get bounce backs or you get the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. Um, you know, talk about um, you know, getting you know, you guys have created a functionality that you know gets you in front of you know the you know gets you in front of the right private equity firm but also the right person at that private mm. equity firm talk right. about that what that functionality is because i think it's amazing yeah uh actually let me maybe take a step back and talk a little more broadly and then i'll narrow into that sure uh, there's kind of three if i think about it m a advisors there's three use cases really for when people ping our database the mm. first is you have a potential pitch coming up or you have a pitch coming up to a potential client and you're looking to get smart quickly, see who the players are in that space, who are the active investors in that industry. And so they'll use our service to do some quick searches, get, get ready for their pitches. The second case would be, okay, you've got the engagement. Now you're putting together your full-blown marketing plan for a particular client. Then you're going to be really digging deep into our, our database for that. And uh, the third case is, is identifying potential new clients through you know, our private company database. But in terms of you know, how do you use it for, let's say, the, the second case, really building out your marketing plan. You know, when I was working as an investment banker, I would really think about my, my marketing plan in three lists, right? The A list, the B list, the C list, mm-hmm. right? And the A list are those super targeted rifle shot hits where you know this particular say private equity firm is definitely going to have an interest in taking a look at this deal and uh you know i'm sure you're aware of this but you know the single biggest indicator that a pe firm would have an interest in your client's company is that they've already made a very similar investment right Mm -hmm. so the ability to keyword search or filter by industry the portfolio companies that the private equity firms own is real key defining your A-list targets. And the, this feature that you mentioned at the, the start here is how do you find the exact right person to contact? Well, for each portfolio company, we've assigned the person at the private equity firm who has the board seat to that portfolio company. Mm-hmm. I, I, we've heard this all a lot, and, and I'm sure you've experienced it too. It, it seems like if you reach out to the wrong person at the right firm, you typically get no answer. Have you experienced that? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's super critical to be able to talk to the right person. And the right person would be, well, who has the board seat to the company that's most interesting to you? And they're going to have an interest in looking at your deal. So the right person, the right time, the right firm. I put that together. So that that's what that feature is. And of course, let me just continue on. The B list would be, well, maybe they don't have they don't have a an investment in that space already, but they have a stated interest in the industry and it fits yep. the right 
geography, the right size criteria and whatnot. And then the C list is, well, you hope you don't need a C list. <laughs> you know, that means you have a hard deal, right? <laughs> so that's the catch all. But yeah, that, that's generally how people use our service and, and that's how they connect with the right, the right firms and the right people, the right firms. And that, that's just saves time. And as, as we know in this industry, time can kill all deal. Time kills all deals, right? And right. we can be more effect. Yeah, right. And so if we can hit right on the first time, I think that's uh that's that's absolutely important and uh, and vital. Um but you know, with this, you know, as as you guys have built out this this amazing platform, um you've talked with, you know, a lot of MA professionals. A lot of private equity firms. Um, what are some things that you know you have, you and your team? We talk. I mean, maybe it relates to your data integrity, but also you know relationship building and finding you know this 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 great these great people to connect with. Um, how do you and your team leverage those conversations that you guys have with all these these people in the M and A industry to uh, not only help you know you guys out and your platform, but also help out others that utilize your platform. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of themes here. It's a very broad question. Let me see if I can narrow it down. I had a, had a whole bunch of thoughts and they collided at the same time yeah. in my head. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting for us is that we talk to a lot of firms day in, day out, right? Firms like yours and, and, and similar, both private equity and investment banking. And typically, if you're working at, we'll say, a middle market investment bank, you know what your firm's doing and you know what you're experiencing in the marketplace. Yep. And you probably know what a couple of other firms are doing because you talk to some people and and maybe a little more broadly, you see people at a conference and, and you share some stories and how are things going. But we sort of have a a view of the landscape of across a lot of different firms. And I think we have a really good pulse of you know, what's actually going on across the M&A landscape because of that. And so we often ask people when we're talking to them, like, how's, how's deal flow? It's a really interesting question to see, to sort of gauge what's what's happening across the spectrum of firms. You know, an M&A, you know, it, activity, we'll say, it, it ebbs and flows. It, it's largely influenced by macroeconomic events, what the Fed's doing, uh, demographic changes uh, in the population, like baby boomers, for example, retiring. So we have a really good pulse on what's happening in terms of uh, across a large swath of firms out there. And we use those conversations to, well, spread the word amongst the other firms we talk to and what what's the pulse and also to inform us as to, you know, how we might develop new features and tools in our product. What are, talk about just the pulse of the M&A space right now. Um, talk more recently, maybe and look back in the past year, you know, maybe look going forward about, what have you what have you heard in these conversations you've had? What are some common pain points that you know mm -hmm. investment banks are having right now in the in the state of you know this economy? Yeah, I guess in right now the pain points are the same they always are, right? What is the number one and number two things that that we're just talking founder to founder kind of conversations, right? And yep. how's deal flow going? What do you guys thinking about right now, what, what are you experiencing in the marketplace? It's always the, the top two things are access to quality deal flow, right? Yep. And smoothing the cash flow cycle at an investment bank because it's quite lumpy. Yep. Um, right. So if we talk about those two in particular, 
uh, so quality deal flow is always top of mind. It is the lifeblood of an investment bank, right? So it, I guess that brings up the question, what do you mean by quality deal flow? Like how do, how do we generate more deal volume and then ensure that those deals that we're working on are higher quality and what is a high quality deal? What's well, all the things that, that you know is client whose company has the attributes that increase the probability of closing, right? <laughs> That's, so they've got, you know, good margins, stable cash flows. It's predictable cash flows, no customer concentrations. Um, the seller has some sort of motivation to close, those sort of things. So, um, so how do you get higher quality deal flow? I put a lot of thought into this and I'm curious what your thinking is. Um, I kind of view it as the firms that are the most successful are playing the long game, right? And in order to play the long game, well, let me phrase it this way. If you were to think back over the last, say, 10 years of deals you guys have done as a firm, and you say, well, pick your top three deals. And by top, I mean they were, they closed, <laughs> they were lucrative. And they were easy to, to work with the, the seller or the capital raise, whatever the case may be. I would wager that most investment bankers that I would frame that question to, if you pick your top three, where did that deal come from? It'll almost always be from a referral, a personal relationship, not from some just general purpose marketing, Google ads, you know, the casting of a wide net. It's almost always... Uh, starts with relationships where all the best deals come from, the highest quality deals. Right. And if that's the case, and it generally is, would you say that would probably be the case for you? I would, I would completely agree with you there. Yes. Yeah. So then, then yeah, I think that resonates with most most bankers that I talk to. So then the question isn't how do we do more marketing to get more deals. The question more fundamentally is how do we build relationships today that result in higher quality deals tomorrow. Right. Right. And, and I guess, you know, M&A is a very transactional business, mm -hmm. but it's a very relationship-based practice. And I think everyone mm -hmm. who is in this space understands that. Uh, and, and, you know, I guess there's really no substitute for time and relationships, right? So, so I think really, if you think about like, where are you allocating your time and, and your professional relationships and your networking and taking people to lunches and that sort of thing today, I think that defines your long-term deal flow, quantity and quality. Yeah. You know, we, um, we got together recently as an alliance this past fall. And, um, you know, that was, that was the topic. The topic like you hit on is, is deal flow. What are strategies you're using to market it? What business development tactics are you doing to get more clients in? And I saw, you know, just sitting in the room, I saw, you know, as we're talking about this, one of, one of, our, um, one of our partners that's, you know, said, you know, we really focus on a certain amount of key referral sources. We dedicate our time to that. And I'm like, a couple of aha moments, like, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. But because you, you can spend a ton of time doing marketing. And marketing is important. You know, you got to get your brand out there. You got to let people know about you. You know, things like that. That's important. You can't completely forget about that, right? You still have to do some of that. But if you're right. talking about direct business development, bringing in clients, um, you hit you hit the nail on the head. It's it's referral sources. 
um, and developing those relationships. It's going to take time, right? Like you said, it's going to take time. You got to nurture them. How are you like the conversation that went to, how are you nurturing those relationships? How many touch points are you having? Because you could have a huge list of referral sources, or maybe you want a narrow list of 10 that you just really, really focus on and have more touch points regularly than these 200 referral sources that you reach out to twice a year. Um, Cause that's not really relationship building. And like you mentioned, this is a relationship building industry. And so, you know, what I've learned, you know, just talking with our own group and our, our experiences is, you know, focus on those referral sources, like you said, but maybe narrow it to a group that is, you know, consolidated enough where you have the time to really develop those relationships and, you know, maybe even become friends, who knows? And you're yeah, going to go helps. on trips together with your families. And whatever. You know, like, that's the kind of level I think that you, you want to get to, to be able to, anytime that person comes across an opportunity, they're going to send it to you, know, you know, undoubtedly. And yeah, I think some more touch points is what I would say is what I've heard in, in my experience. Yeah, I would say one of the most underutilized marketing efforts at an investment bank are the successful deals you've closed. Mm -hmm. right? If you've done a great job on a deal, um, hopefully some word of mouth happens for you. And yep. momentum begets momentum. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, one yeah. thing, Andy, before we go on to the next one, sorry to cut you off there. One thing I would add to that too is don't feel um, bad about or you know, asking your former clients to also help, you know, like, hey, if, if you had a great experience with, you know, us helping sell your company, you know, tell your friends, like, don't, don't be, you know, afraid to have that conversation, because they might not think about that. But, you know, as if you kind of plant that seed, okay, I have, I have a couple of friends who are business owners, I'll let them know about what I experienced. And hopefully down the road, you'll get the, your, your clients, friends, you know, business as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the the second one is smoothing the cash flow cycles or if you want to move on. Yeah, let's, let's go. Yeah, absolutely. Dive in. Can talk about it? Um, well, as we all know, if you're an M&A professional, cash flow is lumpy. Even when I was working at Bear Stearns in the industrial slash chemicals group, that's a big bulge bracket firm. And you would think that, that the cash flow would smooth out and it's not something that people would worry about. But, you know, it, it happens the same there. What happens is your team starts marketing. And lo and behold, it results in a deal or two or three. And then you're all in burning the midnight oil, working on deals. And you're not doing any marketing. And you're mm -hmm. just grinding. And you close the deals. And you're like, oh, no, we don't have anything to work on. This guy is falling. This guy is falling. You know? And you start marketing. And you know it's just this entrepreneurial roller coaster. And, and I know all firms go through it, even the bulge bracket firms by each industry yep. group kind of goes through that cycle. And uh, that's very normal. And, and, you know, especially if you talk about middle market or lower middle market firms, there's a big difference in the outcome for your year. If you close one, two, three, or four deals or zero, right? right? It's such a huge difference because the outcomes are so binary. And so that, that's the second thing people talk to me about is, you know, you, oftentimes firms hold tremendous amounts of reserve cash because you just never know if the next deal is going to close or not. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you guys are the same way. Um, there are some things that, that I think could be done, and some firms are doing things like this. For example, better retainers for your deals and your deal structure. 
some firms are offering consulting practices, which is a lead gen for eventual deals. Um, one, probably the single biggest one is just engage really good clients and, and say no to some that aren't. And sometimes when you have a season where a deal flows slow, you're inclined to take that lesser quality deal, maybe we'll say. <laughs> and that can burn a lot of your time for maybe no outcome. Um, other firms are hiring like a dedicated business development executive to help smooth. So you, so you don't have the people doing the deal of marketing, deal, marketing, deal, and go through that cycle. You have someone continually focused on bringing in a steady flow of, of new deals. Uh, other firms are adding valuation practices. Yep. Uh, as a as a lead gen, it's just something that's constantly dripping in potential new deal flow and also some revenue and cash flow to keep the lights on kind of money. Mm -hmm. um, other firms are outsourcing analyst work so that you can free up your time to to both do a deal and market at the same time. Just some ideas for for people out there who who are thinking like, man, the the cash flow can be great in some years, but it's so lumpy. Yeah. You know, the, the theme of that, you're just the, the, and the things that you, you'd mentioned are really great, but you know, the theme that I see there too, as, as, as an M&A advisor and as an investment banker, um, if you can focus on the deals and you have other people working around you to support that, mm -hmm. like then you can have, you know, that can be, the cash flow can be less lumpy, it can be flatter and you can turn around more deals. Um, you know, we recently did a study about where an M&A advisor should, you know, spend his or her time. Hmm. And yeah, it's not on the marketing. It's not on necessarily the business development. Obviously, you know, for us, I'd say formal business development. Obviously, we want you to continue to work on nurturing those referral sources and relationships. Um, but if you can focus on, you know, your clients, um, getting the deal done and, and building that trust and rapport that, that you have. Um, so your clients will, you know, obviously be, it'd be easier to work with having that trust report, but it'll go, hopefully the deal will go smoother. But if you can have, and this isn't always the case, cause we have a lot of small firms too, that are, you know, one, two, three person shops. It's not always the case, but if you can do that in a perfect world where you can have people around and advisors support them, I think, what do you think, Anna? is that something that would, would help that out? Well, look, in an ideal world, it's about how, how can you best allocate your resources, which is your time. Um, in an ideal world, you would you would allocate all your time to your highest value contributions, which is working with the client directly and uh, doing the highest level strategic M and A kind of work. But mm -hmm. let's face it, you know, there's just a lot of other things that, especially at a small firm where you wear a lot of hats and you just you just right. got to spin a lot of plates, and and I and that is the conundrum, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so what, what are some, you know, common mistakes you're seeing bankers make right now that might impact, you know, deal closings or, you know, you know, new opportunities or, or maybe deals getting done? I don't know if I'm answering this question exactly the way you framed it, but one of the biggest mistakes I think people, uh, M&A advisors make is that they don't work on larger deals. And I know it's easy to say, it's, it's sometimes harder to get larger deals and, and to get a larger deal, you have to have experience doing larger deals. But, you know, I, I would say work, work your way up to do larger deals. I mean, the workload to close a deal 
does not scale with deal size. Yeah, right. As long as, as long as you're in the middle market, right? So at the lower end of the middle market, I would say the effort required to close a deal is often inversely proportional to the deal size. I mean, smaller deals sometimes are just more difficult. Right, right. More work for less payoff. Yeah. What are some, you know, speaking of, you know, you know, doing bigger deals, like I said, it can be challenging. In your experience and your conversation you had, what are you seeing? What are some things that might prohibit an advisor to be able to do bigger deals? You know, I think you got to scale up to doing bigger deals. It's not, it's not like you can take this huge step function, although sometimes that does happen if you have a good relationship with someone, mm-hmm. with a client. Um, doing bigger deals is, is a matter of taking on slightly larger deals continuously such that you, you eventually are doing just bigger deals and, and perhaps staying there to some of the, the more difficult, smaller deals so, so that you free up your time to do bigger ones. I mean, you certainly have to have a, a resume of having done a 50, 100 million, $200 million deal to, to probably pitch that to a new client. But let's say you're working on a, you know, a $30 million deal. It's not a big swing to say, well, a 40. Right. 40 to 50, you know, and just kind of generally push your way up. Which is probably organically how it, how it happens, right? Yeah. And, and I think people will find that they're easier to do. You have more professional uh, management in place. It's maybe a less emotional tie to the business. Uh, you know, at the smallest mm-hmm. end of the deals, it's, you know, it's an owner founder and it's his baby. It's a, it's a very emotional deal. You know, Andy, I've heard you say a couple of times, say no to deals, say no to maybe the smaller deals, the the hair, more hairy deals. Um, that sounds easy in theory, but uh, I'm sure you're seeing that's not always the case with the people you talk to. Um, would you, well, would you agree with that? I mean, the allure of revenue is, is, is always there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh but there is an opportunity cost for every deal you accept to take on. And, and as, as we all know, there are a lot of hours that go into even just formulating uh, you know, your presentation material, putting together your marketing plan, putting together information memorandums and executive summaries and non-disclosure agreements and managing just the initial part of the, the process. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. a huge undertaking before you even start a deal. Um, but yeah, I get I get your point. It's hard to say no to something that could be. You, it's easy to talk yourself into taking on a client if times right, are slow, right. especially. Harder to talk yourself out of taking on a not so great client because you. Yeah, you said yeah, but I mean, you have to just you just have to consider there's an opportunity cost for taking them on. Right. Exactly. That's 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 the advice right there. I'm hit it right you're right on the head there. Um, I mean, the last four years have been pretty unique, right? With uh, COVID and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, are you seeing, you know, do we have enough information? Are you seeing any new norms, um, you know, right now in m and Yeah, there's never a norm that lasts very long, it seems, right? It's sort of where are we, where, where have we been and where we kind of feel like we're at and where does it maybe feel like we're going? But it's always, it's always changing in flux. Uh, I would say kind of recapping recent past, Q1 of 2023 was pretty good, what felt like normal deal flow activity. But then Q2 and Q3 of last year, 2023, happened. 
and it just fell off a cliff. It's like someone just flipped a light switch. Did you guys experience the same thing, Q2, summer? Yes, yes. Yeah, deals you, are paused or pushed, you know, taken longer. You and everybody else. And it's not just M&A. It wasn't just the investment banks. It wasn't just private equity. It was all their customers. It was everyone in industry. It's like something happened in the summer and everyone just quit. (laughs) (laughs) I have some some theories for that, maybe three things that come to mind. Uh, Well, well, there was an increase in interest rates, right? So there's a recalibration of business valuations because of the the debt load. Uh, Two is there there was a lot of talk last summer of the oncoming recession. If yep. you recall, everyone's talking about recessions coming. Hadn't happened yet. And then three is, I think that was the first summer in a while where people said, you know what? Screw it. COVID's over. We're taking a real proper family vacation. Yeah, and I, right. did, yeah. I bet you did too. And yeah. uh, people just disappeared for a while. Uh, just kind of like, let's, let's just take a vacation because we've all been holed up here for a few summers. So, you put all those things together, deal flow dropped off completely in Q2 and part of Q3. Uh, Q4 started picking back up, yep. uh, starting to see some activity. And I think uh, that was, you know, take some time to digest. So re- revalue or I guess revaluations, expectations of the sellers, right? Interest rates mm-hmm. went up, maybe valuations have to come down. Some deals that were in the pipeline might get renegotiated a bit. Um, Q1 this year, deal flow seems to be garnering quite a bit of momentum. Um, you know, anytime you have a pause, you, you're kind of stuffing the pipeline. And I think we're starting right. to see deal flow pick up, at least in the people we're talking to. That's what, that's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I would, I would add on that too, you know, why, you know, another reason why Q1 is probably a little stronger too is, you know, those deals just got delayed, you know, Q3, Q4, 23. Um, which doesn't help your 23 numbers, but uh, it'll be a good start to 24. Um, mm-hmm. And But then you're also looking at what does that pipeline look like? So hopefully the pause in Q2, 3 has, like you said, filled the pipeline. And now you have some you know, new opportunities that you know didn't make sense last year, but you know, are going to come to market here in the first part of 24. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the private equity side of the equation, the buy side, 2023, they were very cautious. Uh, if you look at the ratio of add-on investments to platform investments, it went up considerably. So they were still deploying capital, but in bite-sized pieces. So more on the uh, add-ons. So a lot fewer uh, platform acquisitions. And, and yeah. so we saw the slowdown this summer. We saw it even, even in our uh, business. We saw it in the search activity on the database, you know, just the engagement of customers, and just ancillary conversations. But it's picking back up. There's a bulge in the yep. pipeline. It it does come out. People eventually do sell their companies because eventually they want to retire. <laughs> or worse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We got a lot. We, well, and and there, there's you know probably a lot of like I said the pipeline hopefully is is full, but um, you know these opportunities are coming. So what? Where are those opportunities happening? What are some hot industries you know we're looking at right now? Um, and from what you guys what you guys have seen. Yeah, I mean, it's strange. Like, there are certain seasons where certain industries are hot. And I don't know why that is. I think a lot of the PE firms act in, in concert on 
specific industry theses. Uh, you know, back some years ago, it was like we had this focus on dental office roll-ups. And then in recent years, it's been HVAC and fire protection services. And basically, these industries are just super fragmented and very geographically focused. And so tons of HVAC deals in the last two, three years and fire protection services. It just kind of goes in waves. I'm not really sure exactly why that is. But outside of industry roll-ups, the hot sector is really, um, in the last 18, 12, 18 months, has really been software and healthcare, um, primarily because those are high-margin businesses. And with, with software in particular, you get the, the uh, recurring revenue, and you know, they're low capex. What about on the flip side? What are some industries that aren't doing so well or maybe us as investment bankers want to want to be cautious on? There's one industry in particular and it's construction that's always a challenge. I don't know if you've right. done a construction deal sure. or considered it. Here's a story for you. When, when we would speak at conferences in the past, I used to think it would be fun to just work on a live project from the audience. And I would ask, hey, anyone got a deal? We can just work through it live instead of just doing a you know, canned example yep. of how to use our database. And yeah. inevitably, the hands would go up. I'd just pick someone at random, like they're working on some construction deal, right? <laughs> well, the reason why they're bringing that up is because they're not having a lot of success with it. And they're like, hey, I'm going to phone a friend here, <laughs> you know, like, trying to get a lifeline because uh, construction deals are hard, they're just particular for for private equity investors, you just, they're, they're hard to close because they're very capital intensive. They're, they tend to be very re regionally relationship based, right? Who you know, who the owner knows for 30 years. And further, the strategic buyers for construction companies often aren't buyers because they would say to themselves, you know, they, they always have this, this AB comparison and that is, do I acquire or do I just build it? Which, yeah. you know, like, well, I, I could either spend all this money to acquire my competitor or I could just outbid them or underbid them, we'll say, for the job. And so I can just take their business through bidding. It's cheaper, you know? Right. Yeah. So uh, construction deals are, those are tough ones. It's hard to find buyers for those deals. Now, if you have a product, you build trusses and frames for construction, that's different. Or if you have software or services for the construction industry, that's different. But if you're general contractor, kind of heavy equipment construction, that's tough. Anything else that you can think of that maybe we haven't hit on that it would be relevant uh, for our audience to know just about current state M&A, what we can look for, you know, in 2024, um, anything else that we haven't hit on? Nothing comes to mind. You might have exhausted all my brain cells. <laughs> I guess that's a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good podcast. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> uh, well, Andy, I really appreciate your insight and your time today. I thought this was amazing. You gave a lot of really good nuggets in there that I think uh, people will, will, it will resonate with them and hopefully they can, they can take that and improve on their own um, ways of, of doing and attacking this year. Um, but if anyone, if our listeners want to know more about you or private equity info, maybe they want to learn more about the platform and how, how it can help them, you know, where can we send our listeners to go find out more information? Yeah, well, hopefully you'll drop a link to us uh, at privateequityinfo.com. 
if you're listening to this podcast, I'll speak to you directly. Uh, I'd be happy to set up a free trial if you want to just reach out to me or someone on my team here or uh, even schedule a, a demo with us where we can go through a working session where you're not going to give us a construction deal. And uh, we'll just work through some deal that you're going through just so you can see how the platform works and how uh, how the ease of use of our platform and the quality of our data can lead you to work uh, find buyers for your clients more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would highly encourage you to take advantage of that free offer from Andy and his team. I think uh, it'll it'll be eye opening and it'll improve your processes, give you some efficiencies in getting in front of the right buyer uh, for your for your deals. Um, so Andy, thank you for that. Thank you for that offer. Uh, thank you for joining joining me today. Um, that is all we have for today's episode of the MA Mastermind Podcast. Uh, help Andy and myself out. Share, comment, like. Um, pass on this 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 conversation to anybody who you think might benefit from it. Um, and be sure to check out all of our episodes at cornerstoneia.com slash podcast. Until next time, thank you all for listening. Take care. <laughs>